Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. I want to start off this morning by sharing uh, a story that I've actually shared before, but I've come to find over the years that... uh, I have to say something four or five times for you guys to remember it, so you probably won't remember this story. But in 2017, my wife and I got a chance to go to Northern California, and while we were in Northern California, we visited a redwood forest. This is something that we were really looking forward to, and we got to go to the redwood forest that was uh, where the Ewoks lived in Star Wars. If you remember the Ewoks, who some of my children look like... uh, this is was, this was where that scene was filmed. And so when we went through the Redwoods, man, it was actually pretty incredible. Just the size of these trees and knowing that they were some of them eight, nine hundred years old, a thousand years old, what they'd lived through. It was really kind of a humbling and incredible experience to see them. I have two pictures uh, that I want to throw up. These are not pictures that I took. These are pictures that I just uh, snatched off of Google. But this is just to give you some perspective of how big these redwood trees really are. This is a full-grown, I believe that's a full-grown man standing next to uh, just about half a dozen uh, sequoia trees. And they are, I mean, to me, they look like dinosaur feet. I mean, they're just, they're huge. Uh, If you think about the kind of trees that line our streets in Philadelphia, you know, these are about... 10 to 12 times uh, the size of just like uh, an American poplar that might be on a street in Philadelphia. And then the next picture is just kind of a similar one. It's two kids hugging uh, the base of a giant redwood or sequoia tree. And it just gives you some perspective on how big those trees really are. So while I was in California, I, I'm cheap. And so I like to get free... Um, tokens and trinkets on my trip, souvenirs. And so one of the things I wanted to get was, I'm going to get me a redwood pine cone. I want a pine cone from a redwood tree. So while I was in California, I picked up this pine cone off the ground. I didn't buy it because like I said, I'm cheap. I'm not going to pay for a pine cone. I picked up this pine cone. I don't know if you can tell, but this thing, I mean, it fills my whole hand. It's bigger than a softball. Not only is it really large, It is spiky. It actually kind of hurts to hold. This thing looks prehistoric. I mean, it's gigantic, and it's got these spiked edges that are turned up, I guess, to make sure that no predators eat uh, from it, and uh, it's still got sap on it. So I keep this in my office as a decoration, but here's the thing. This is not a redwood pine cone. I pulled this out from some other tree that was about 40 feet tall because I just thought this looked like the kind of pine cone a dinosaur would eat, and so I grabbed it, but this is not a redwood pine cone. This pine cone is almost as big, but this is also not a redwood pine cone, right? I was under the impression that a pine cone from a redwood tree would be this humongous pine cone. These are redwood pine cones. They're tiny. I mean, these are some of the small, this is two of them also, by the way. These were actually picked up right underneath the trees, and these things are so small. And of course, it's not the pine cone itself that uh, germinates life from a redwood. It's the seed that's in between the pieces of the pine cone. So the seeds are even smaller than this. But I just thought it was interesting. 
I had an expectation that a gigantic tree would have a gigantic pine cone with a gigantic seed, but in reality, these gigantic trees had these tiny little itty-bitty pine cones. That, I mean, I've been making earrings from them uh, in, in my Etsy shop, just kidding. Uh, tiny pine cones, tiny seeds that produce these gigantic trees, many of whom have lived for a thousand years. So what was it about me? Why did I go in with this misconception that a big tree would have a big pine cone with a big seed? I think in my mind, and I'm probably not the only one that would think this, big things have to start big, I guess, relatively big. But this is not the way that things work in the kingdom of God. Jesus taught a series of parables in Matthew chapter 13 about the kingdom of God, and oftentimes when we think about the kingdom of God, and and when they thought about the kingdom of God in the Bible, they thought in terms of government takeover, military invasion, war, battle, it's going to be thunder and lightning, shock and awe, big bang, boom. You know what I mean? That's what they were expecting the kingdom of God to be, and I found that Sometimes I think we still expect that, that we, we use words like breakthrough and, and explosion and thunder and lightning to describe what we think the kingdom of God is like, but this is what Jesus said the kingdom of God is like, a tiny little seed, a pearl, some yeast worked into some dough. The kingdom of God, the way Jesus taught about it, was not a gigantic nuclear bomb It was a little seed. The kingdom of God, the way Jesus talked about it, was not a tornado or a hurricane. It was a little bit of yeast. It was a pearl that's so valuable that it's a little tiny pearl that would go in your pocket or on your ear that's more expensive than your house. So we're going to look at a few of the parables of Jesus from Matthew chapter 13. Before we get to the parables, though, I want to talk about the kingdom of God a little bit because the kingdom of God is a concept that is probably not adequately understood by the church, particularly in the United States. We have this other term called Christendom that we have adopted. Christendom is kind of the idea that we're gonna Christianize the world, maybe through legislation, maybe through uh, enculturation or indoctrination, uh, where we're gonna make the world kind of vaguely Christian and maybe if we do that for a thousand years, Jesus will return or something like that. But the kingdom of God just does not, is not the same thing as Christendom. The kingdom of God is a realm where Jesus is the king. The kingdom of God has a king. And that king is Jesus. And Psalm 2 says that Jesus has already been installed as king on God's holy mountain. So the kingdom of God is the primary message that was preached in the Gospels and even into the epistles. Not Christendom, not Christianization, but the advance of the kingdom of God. The way that the kingdom of God advanced was in some ways through, the, through preaching. I, two weeks ago I taught about this. I talked about the three or four things that Jesus did and then he sent his disciples out to do. One was healing the sick, one was casting out demons, but one of them was to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. The disciples were not the first people to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist actually came with that message before Jesus' ministry was public, before Jesus had ever made 12 disciples. John the Baptist was going out in the wilderness and in the countryside preaching, repent, 
The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. It's nearby. It's accessible. And then Jesus actually picked up John's message and Jesus continued to teach and Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then what did Jesus in Matthew 10 and Matthew 12 and other places, what did Jesus teach his disciples to preach? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after the disciples, we get to uh, the apostle Paul at the end of Acts, the last verse in Acts, chapter 28, verse 31, it says, boldly and without hindrance, Paul taught the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the, the kingdom of God is the content of all of the preaching in the New Testament. From John the Baptist to the Apostle Paul and even John's revelation at the end of the New Testament, the kingdom of God, that's the content of the preaching. They actually call it the gospel of the kingdom. And I want to make sure that we understand that the gospel that we proclaim is the gospel of the kingdom. I think that sometimes we preach the gospel of personal salvation or the gospel of forgiveness, but, and while that is part of the message and it's central to the message and it's a beautiful part of the message and maybe it's the beauty of forgiveness that gets us to camp out on that, but that is not the entire message. It is a kingdom that is expanding and growing and it's God's kingdom. So the gospel of forgiveness sounds like this. You're a sinner who needs a savior and if you accept Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and savior, He'll forgive you and you'll go to heaven someday. And all of that is true. There's not one word of that that is not true, but that is such a small part of the story. You know, the gospel doesn't start with, you're a sinner. It includes that. The gospel starts with, God is good. And the gospel ends with, God is good. It starts with, he created the heavens and the earth. There's a creator that we had a relationship with. We forfeited that relationship through rebellion. That's where the, our sinful nature comes in or our flesh comes in and our rebellion and the fallenness of humanity. That's where that comes in. But it starts with God who is a good creator who created us for a relationship who we had relationship with and then fell out of relationship with. And then because of God's goodness, he sent prophets. And because of God's goodness, he sent a savior. And because of God's goodness, he sends the Holy Spirit. He calls us and then he, because of his goodness, sends us to go tell other people. And because of his goodness, he will ultimately reconcile all things to, the, to himself through Jesus and because God is good he will reunite heaven and earth and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth but it's all based on God's goodness. Does that make sense? The gospel of the kingdom is bigger than the gospel of forgiveness because the gospel of the kingdom includes the forgiveness of sins but it also includes the healing of disease. It includes deliverance from demonic oppression. It includes spiritual gifts and operating in spiritual gifts. It includes knowing our identity in Christ. It includes missions and evangelism. I mean, the gospel of the kingdom is far bigger than the gospel of forgiveness. This happened about in the 1800s. In the 1800s, evangelical Christians like ourselves begin to really focus on the gospel of forgiveness. And we, we would do revival meetings and big gospel presentations, and if we could get people to come forward and repeat a prayer and sign a card, we said the kingdom is advancing. 
And after about 100 years of that, you know, there were people in the church that said, you know, I think there's more to it than that because a lot of these people that are coming up and repeating these prayers and signing these cards, like they're not doing anything afterwards. And so these people in the early 1900s started saying there's got to be like more to the gospel, like there's got to be a, a fuller gospel, and they coined the term full gospel. We should have never had to make up that term, but we made up the term full gospel because we kind of knew there was more than just come up front, sign a card, repeat a prayer, and then go live your life. There is a fuller gospel. We actually believe in what we call a fourfold gospel, which is that Jesus is our Savior, but he is also our sanctifier who grows us in holiness and makes us more like himself. He's also our healer who heals us body, soul, and spirit. And he's also our coming king, which spurs us on to missions and evangelism. That there's more to the gospel than simply repeat this prayer. I want to read for you a quote from A.B. Simpson. This is from the book, The Fourfold Gospel. And in that book, he says, many Christians are converted and they stop there. They don't go on to the fullness of their life in Christ. You'll find that men and women who who do not press on in their Christian experience to gain the fullness of their inheritance in him will often become cold and formal. I think one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a person is that they have this initial experience where they believe they've put their trust in Jesus and then they do not go on from there. Because they believe that because they repeated a prayer, signed a card, or went to an altar call, I'm good. I pray, you know, I had the transaction. It's done. And then they don't grow in their faith. But the kingdom of, the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom is for all of life. Not just uh, chronologically, but holistically. It is for all of your life. That, that prayer you may have prayed, that card you may have signed, that altar call you may have responded to should then go on to impact your marriage, your finances, your personal and private life, your professional life, the way you raise your kids, the way you give, all of that stuff, the way you serve in your community. It's, it's really, it takes control of your whole being and that's what we see in these parables of the mustard seed and the leaven and yeast and the pearl. Now, Really quickly, I want to talk uh, one more thing about the kingdom of God before we get into these parables. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus. It is how God does things based on what God is like. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, just look at the king. The kingdom is like the king. The kingdom is like Jesus. How did Jesus enter the world? Did he come with an army and some trumpets? He came as a poor kid born in a stable, right? Born on the run. His life was in danger, right? On the road. This is how, this is how the king came, who had control over this, who had sovereign control over this. He came as a small little child in a vulnerable situation. The king suffers on behalf of his people. What other king suffers on behalf of the people? Many kings and leaders expect the people to suffer on behalf of the comfort of the king, but in this case, the king suffers on behalf of the people. The king washes the feet of his disciples and servants. That's totally upside down and backwards of any other kingdom that we're familiar with. The king washes their feet. The king serves, and ultimately, the king dies for the people that hate him. The king dies for the people that reject him. So the kingdom of God is like that. 
I don't know if this is a real word, but the kingdom of God comes in smallness. It comes in smallness. It comes in small ways, but it, also, it is also incredibly potent. It comes in small uh, packages, but it is incredibly potent. Now, I want to read three parables from Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 actually has about half a dozen either parables or explanations of the parables. Some of them are longer, and not every parable makes the same point, which is why we're not reading all the parables, because some of those parables would need to be a separate sermon. But I want to read the three shortest parables that are in Matthew chapter 13. These are relatively short passages. Uh, Maybe that's part of the point, that the kingdom of God is so small it only takes... One or two verses to explain, but then it has this gigantic impact, but it enters through smallness. So I'm going to start with the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32, then the parable of the leaven or yeast in verse 33, then we'll skip to the parable of the the pearl of great price in verses 45 and 46. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And then skipping to verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we're going to look at the mustard seed, the leaven, and the pearl. All right? These are, these are relatively short, so I, I don't even have a ton to say because I think that the parables are pretty self-evident and pretty to the point. This mustard seed... so. He's referring to something that would be familiar to them. They grew mustard plants. I don't know if you guys have mustard plants. I actually used to work on a farm that grew mustard plants. And so I remember one of my very first sermons in college, I was preparing to preach on this parable, and I was working on the farm over the summer, and lo and behold, that week I'm working with mustard plants. So I actually snatched one up out of the ground and took it with me to church that Sunday and put it up on the stage and said, this is what a mustard plant looks like. It was about as tall as this screen next to me. So not huge as far as trees go, but when you compare, so similar to my story of redwoods and sequoias, when you compare the size of the seed to the size of the plant full grown, it's impressive what takes place. This is not like an acorn that can be, you know, this big and turn into an oak tree. It's this tiny little seed that grows into this, you know, a mustard plant can get to eight or ten feet, not gigantic, but bigger than you and I, except for Matthew's boys. And, uh, and what's incredible about a, that was a good spontaneous joke there. The, the thing about a mustard plant that impressed me was how many seeds they then produced. I wasn't necessarily impressed with the size of the plant. I, was, I thought it was incredible that one seed produced a mustard tree, and the one I grabbed must have had 500 other little seeds on it in, in little pods. And the multiplication power of that tiny little seed that's like maybe the size of the, of a, the head of a push pin, you know, like just this tiny little uh, uh, seed, like a, uh, almost as big as a coriander seed, if you know how big coriander seeds are. Uh, 
produced a tree that then, in one t- moment, was able to produce about 500 other seeds, and the next season, 500 more, and the next season, 500 more. I mean, the whole purpose of a seed is to produce a forest, right? That's what seeds do. They have this multiplying effect. The whole, the whole reason a seed exists is to become a tree and to make more seeds. So they were familiar with this. They grew mustard trees. They grew mustard plants. This is a garden plant. This is not something you'd see in a gigantic forest or something like this. This is kind of a domestic garden plant. So if you think about garden plants, garden plant blueberry bushes, which I can't grow, raspberry bushes, beans, like those things don't get that big. So when you compare it to a garden plant, something that's eight or 10 feet tall is actually relatively large. So they were familiar with mustard plants because they grew mustard plants. The seeds were among the smallest of the seeds in all their seed collections. If you've ever grown beans, beans are maybe this big, but a mustard seed is significantly smaller than a a bean. They would plant them and they would grow. Now, the comparison here, uh, every, every one of these parables has not only an object, but also a person, a character who's in the story. In this story, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. So in order to make this mustard seed grow, he not only has to sow it into the field and put it into the ground, what, is, what else does he have to do? He has to cultivate it, water it. Maybe he has to pull out weeds. Maybe he has to space the seeds out intentionally so that they don't uh, get bunched up together. There's some care that this man has to do. It's all implied, of course, but remember, he's speaking to people that plant mustard seeds. They would make these connections. There's some, there's some cultivating that needs to take place for this mustard seed to grow. This isn't a mustard seed that fell off of a bird. This isn't mustard seed that fell off of a tree. This is a mustard seed that was intentionally placed by a man, by a farmer. He sows it in his field. And though the seed is smaller than the other seeds, when it is full grown, it is larger than the other garden plants to the point where now birds can nest in it. Now, birds is an interesting picture in the Bible because a lot of times birds are negative. A lot of times birds represent evil forces, demons, things like that. But there are a handful, maybe half a dozen passages in the Old Testament where birds represent not evil, but birds represent every non-Jewish nation, which is us. Birds represent the nations of the world flocking to the Lord or flocking to the kingdom of God. And so I think that's what the birds represent in this passage. It's not evil, it's actually, now it's all the nations are coming to the kingdom because it's grown, because it's stretched out. So here's kind of the point of this parable. It's that the kingdom starts as a small seed, but it grows as a large tree. Notice this doesn't happen overnight if you've ever planted anything. It doesn't happen overnight. There's a cultivating that must take place. It has to be planted and it has to be cultivated. I think that kind of the application of this would be that, you know, we use this, par- we use this uh, little idiom or colloquialism, I'm just planting a seed, I'm just planting a seed. Well, really, in a lot of ways, we truly are doing that in the conversations that we have with people. We're planting seeds. I mean, one of the best ways that we want to invest in the kingdom of God and its growth and its expansion is simply planting seeds. It's little conversations, it's sh- little prayers, it's little deeds, it's little gifts, it's little ways to help, it's little ways to love, it's little words that are like in seed form. 
I, I know sometimes people think they have to do gigantic things for God, and then when they do this gigantic thing for God and nothing comes of it, they get frustrated. But I think one of the points of this parable is, you know, if you're faithful in doing little things, you'll find that over time they, are, they mature, they grow into big things, right? Does that make sense? I mean, I know that there have been little things people have said in my life that have a gigantic impact now because they grew. They were like little seeds of the kingdom, something that came out of someone's mouth or something that they did for me or a gift or something like that that they gave that was small, but it had a gigantic impact down the road because God cultivated it or got cultivated one way or another, and it became huge. So I want to encourage you, it's okay to think small sometimes. It's okay to, you don't have to pray gigantic long prayers. Short prayers are, can be effective. You don't have to stand up and preach an hour-long sermon in order to have an impact. One word, when it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, can have a bigger impact than a long sermon. I'm still going to preach long sermons personally. I just don't want you to do that. That's my thing. So, but you understand what I'm saying? Like, you don't have to wait, wait for the big moment. The little moments are just as potent. As long as they're done in the power of the Holy Spirit, at the impulse that Jesus gives you, those little moments can have gigantic impact. So it's okay to, for little things. It's okay for your faith to be demonstrated through little things. It's okay if no one notices them. It's okay if it seems small compared to other things because if it's potent, it will grow and it'll be big, just like this mustard seed. Now, the next uh, illustration or next parable that Jesus tells is about leaven. Leaven is yeast. So I'm just going to say yeast because I don't say leaven too much. I don't really say yeast all that much, actually. But I think of uh, this is baking yeast, okay? So Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. A peck is something like 20 pounds of flour. So think about what 20 pounds of flour would produce. That's a lot of bread. So she has three packs, 60 pounds of dough. It's about enough bread for 100 people. It's a lot of bread, right? So I don't know much about baking. I know just enough to explain this parable. That when you, when you are making bread and you want the bread to rise, you have to use yeast or some sort of leavening agent. And you have to kind of knead it into, knead is like to work it into the dough, right? So I was watching some YouTube videos of people kneading bread this week. That was called work. Uh, you know, they, they, they put the leavening agent, yeast of some sort, into the dough, and then they work it in, and then they fold it back over, and they work it in, and then they fold it, and then they work. I mean, it, it, it looks like you could break a sweat doing this process. It's why they've invented machines to do it, because it actually is hard work. And you just work it in. It's called kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. I'm acting like I'm an expert, and I just learned this stuff like four days ago. Okay, You, you work it in, and, but over time, then, you, then after you've worked it in, and it needs to be thoroughly dispersed throughout the bread, right? It needs to be evenly spread throughout the bread. Then you just let the bread sit, and it raise, rises, and then you bake the bread. But if you don't use the leaven, if you don't use the yeast, the bread comes out almost like a pizza crust, flat. It's, it's dense, and it's just, that's not how we like bread. This yeast being used in dough is thousands of years old, 
This is an ancient thing. We still do it basically the way they did it in Jesus' time, other than we use machines. But if you're making bread from home, you're probably doing it very similarly to the way that they were doing it in Jesus' time. Well, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to yeast. It's this agent that just kind of gets worked in over time and it, it evenly disperses and it's, it's spread out. And then what does it do? It activates, right? The kingdom activates. The kingdom causes growth. The kingdom causes expansion. The kingdom causes things to rise and to actually gain strength, but it, it gets worked in. And so I think the application of that is sometimes we think that anything that's kingdom is going to become immediate and it's going to take no work. Oh, well, if it's the kingdom of God, it'll just happen right away. Well, not if it's like leaven. Oh, if it's the kingdom of God, it'll take no effort. Well, not if it's like leaven. If it's the kingdom of God, it's going to have to be worked in. It's going to take some time to spread out. So back to the, the same application. It might take multiple conversations, multiple prayers, multiple years of just needing the kingdom into your relationships, needing the kingdom into your thought life, needing the kingdom into your relationships at work, into your relationships with your family, into way, the way that you're raising the, your kids, to the way that you're handling your finances, just needing the kingdom in and then folding it over and more of the kingdom and then folding it over and more of the kingdom until finally there's an activating effect and it begins to have the impact that you expect. But it's not you know, the snap of a finger. That's not the way the kingdom is compared to Jesus' description. It might be the way that you've heard the kingdom described, but it doesn't match Jesus' description when he uses yeast as an illustration. Now, finally, I want to go to the pearl of great price or the costly pearl. This is in verses 45 and 46. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So at this place in time in history, they lived close enough to the Sea of Galilee and other places where there, were actually, there actually were pearl divers, and they didn't have scuba tanks. There were some pearl divers that could hold their breath for five minutes. Probably some could be longer, but it was not uncommon for a pearl diver to be able to dive into the Sea of Galilee or some other body of water and hold their breath for five minutes and go find pearls or oysters or whatever they had to find to get the pearls up. And that was a profession. And so there were people that went and bought these pearls and paid quite a bit of money. And some of the pearls would be worth millions of dollars by today's standards. Well, this parable is about a pearl dealer a merchant of pearls who goes around and he finds this one pearl that is so valuable that he sells everything he has. So we're assuming a home, other possessions, maybe other pearls to go buy this one pearl of great price. Probably a pearl that would fit in our pocket, depending on how big your jeans are, but probably something would fit in a pocket or a purse or a small bag, he sells everything for this pearl of great price. Why does he sell it? Because it's valuable. The kingdom is costly. But if you ask this merchant, he would say, yeah, but it's worth it. Yes, it costs. Yes, it's expensive. And we don't, we're not talking dollar figures here. Yes, it takes 
but man, it's worth it. This, this merchant goes and sells everything he has. It seems like he doesn't, have, he doesn't second guess. He just goes and he sells everything he has because he wants that. So this is why I think this matters because I've heard the gospel presented this way. Oh, if you follow Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you follow Jesus, all your problems will get sorted out. Your, your marriage will get better. Your finances will get better. Your hair will come back. You know, like your sex life will be better. Every, everything will just get fixed, right? If you, follow, if you just follow Jesus, you can throw a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. Every, every, all your dreams will be fulfilled, right? But that is not what this parable seems to imply. It says, well, if you follow Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it. You may, not, this parable is not saying, oh, you'll gain, you'll gain. It's actually saying, no, you're going to have to give up. Right. There, it's going to cost you potentially comfort. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you promotions. It may cost you this. It may cost you prestige. It may cost you esteem. It may cost you this and that. But it's worth it. It will be worth it. Jesus is worth it. The kingdom is worth whatever you've lost to enter into the kingdom. Jesus is still worth it. And I think that when we stand before Jesus, we'll be able to see clearly it was worth it. The challenge is seeing that now. Do we see it now? Do we understand now that the things that we've given up, the costs that we've accrued, accrued, are worth it. So, uh, the kingdom is costly, but it's worth it. Now, if this is how the kingdom is illustrated by Jesus, a seed, which is small, leaven, which is small, a little pearl, which is small, what does it take for us to receive the kingdom? Or what does it take for us to understand the kingdom? Well, they actually ask him that just a few chapters later in Matthew 18. The disciples gather around Jesus and they want to know, well, what's it take to be great in the kingdom? I still think that their mind is not quite in the right place. They want to know about like fame and fortune and greatness, right, position, you know, power. So this is Matthew 18, one through four. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let me pause before I read on. If we were to ask that question, just who then is the greatest in the world? It would be the biggest, the loudest, the wealthiest, the sexiest. That's, that's what would be greatness by the world's standards, right? Because how do you achieve greatness? By stepping over other people. By plowing other people over, by taking advantage of other people, by putting yourself first is how you achieve greatness on this earth. They said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child to himself and he set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does it take to receive this kingdom in smallness? It takes you becoming small. It takes you becoming childlike in your faith. And I want to be clear, childlike, not childish, 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I put childish things away, but Jesus is saying, but you are going to become childlike. We want to make that distinction. What does it mean to be childlike? Well, he actually does kind of explain that. He says, humble yourself as this child. What he's getting at with this childlike faith is humility. It's, it's the kind of John the Baptist, Jesus must increase, I must decrease, which is the opposite of what you're being told every day. You must increase, right, is what you're being told. Uh, but this is what Jesus is saying. You're going to have to become childlike in your faith. You're going to have to become humble. You're going to have to know that you are not self-sufficient, but you're going to be interdependent. You're going to have to rely on other people. You're going to have to believe what you're told, understanding that you don't understand everything. You're going to walk in humility. You're going to consider other people as better than yourself. You're going to view yourself soberly, not too big, not too small, but you're going to view yourself the way that God views you. You're going to be meek, as it says in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? Meek doesn't mean you're mousy. You're, oh, I'm just, I don't talk much and I'm shy. That's not what meek is. Meek is, I don't have to be in charge. I don't, you can be an extrovert and loud and Italian and still be meek, okay? You can be uh, bombastic and still be meek because meek is... I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to be number one. I don't care about climbing the ladder. I don't care about control. I don't care about power. That's what meekness is. Meekness is not letting yourself get walked over, but it is about not walking over other people. So he's telling them to become like little children. And this is how you become great in the kingdom. The kingdom is illustrated with all of these small things. Seeds, yeast, pearls, children. It's kind of hard to take yourself too seriously when you understand that this is how Jesus sees the kingdom. It, it's, it's about smallness. So this week, you're gonna see the kingdom. If, if you'll just pay attention. This week you're gonna see the kingdom because someone is going to have a conversation with you and spontaneously you're going to get to say something or they're going to say something to you. And can, can, this week, can you just be like, oh, that was the kingdom. That's a little mustard seed right there. So I'm going to cultivate that. Or you may read something in a book. Oh, wow. That changed the way. I, that's worth, that's the pearl of great, that's not the pearl of great price, but like that's valuable. That insight onto the kingdom was valuable. It was worth the time and the cost and the effort that went into receiving it. I'm not saying it's the pearl of great price. I'm just saying that it's valuable. You're going to pray a short prayer this week, right? You're going you're to have little tiny opportunities that don't seem like much. Maybe it's not much to write home about. Maybe it won't even make it to the level of a Facebook post, right? But that's okay because the kingdom comes in smallness. It doesn't stay that way, but it does start that way. I mean, Jesus is eventually going to come back and it's going to be loud and it's going to be obvious and it's going to be in our faces and we're gonna see him coming on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth with a robe dipped in blood. But that is not the way he introduced the kingdom. It's the way he's gonna culminate it. 
So while we're here on this earth, we want to be able to find the kingdom in small things. Can we find the mustard seeds, the pearls, the leaven? Can we work that yeast in? Can we cultivate the mustard seeds? Can we make the sacrifice to gain the pearl of great price? Can, is it okay if we say, you know, the kingdom does come in smallness, so let me look for the small things. Instead of the explosions, instead of the invasions, instead of the thunderclaps, can I look for the kingdom in small things? Little conversations with your kids, little conversations with your spouse, little interactions with your coworkers, your neighbors. You get to pray for your neighbor for 15 seconds. That can be a mustard seed, that can be yeast. You know, that, those types of things over time can grow. And let's not look down on those things, but let's look for those things. Let's keep our eyes peeled for those. So I want to pray for us that this week, our, like our antennas will be tuned to those little kingdom opportunities that take place where it is a conversation, it is a prayer, it is a little gift, it is a little deed that takes place and that we would be satisfied in those things and that, that they'd be cultivated, that they would be realized for their value, that they would be uh, experience that activating impact that the, the yeast has and that we, would, that we would be more about the kingdom than we're about the flashy, the big, uh, and, and those types of things. So Jesus, Lord, we just... Um, embrace that the kingdom of God, it is built on forgiveness, but there is more to it. There is deliverance, there is healing, there is reconciliation, there's a mission to fulfill, and that those are all part of the kingdom. That there's holiness for us to grow into as we receive it from you, and sanctification, Jesus. That there are actually spiritual gifts that you have for us and they might start as small mustard seeds or start like leaven or start the size of a pearl, Lord, but they're valuable. And we don't want to discard things simply because they're small. We don't want to discard conversations because they're small. We don't want to discard people because their impact is small. We don't want to discard those little mustard seeds that you've placed in our lives, Jesus. So help us to be aware of those and to cultivate the kingdom, to be patient on the kingdom, but also to be totally aware of the kingdom, that it's moving forward, that it advances forcefully, even if it's under the radar. We bless you, Jesus. You're the king who illustrates to us what the kingdom is like, and Lord, we want the kingdom, which is an, an international family. It includes every ethnicity, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. The kingdom is the most broad and diverse kingdom that there has ever been. We embrace that and we want to see that in our lives. We pray that in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.